Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Thank you, Jonathan. It's uh, always good to talk. It's always good to start on time because it uh, really confuses a lot of people. Welcome. My name's John. I work here, pastoral assistant. Um, if you're visiting with us, I see one or two visitors. We're really pleased to see you. Tea and coffee is served afterwards. Give us a chance to introduce ourselves to you and get to know you. Today is Absolution Sunday, which means if you speak to Will's Confused, if you speak to somebody you've seen around a lot of, a lot of times, um, uh, but have never actually got their name or forgotten their name, you get forgiveness today for asking them. So it's Absolution Sunday. Okay, so, so introduce at some stage yourself to one another. We're here to worship God. And hear these words from Jesus, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, even Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. Let us stand together and sing, Be Thou My Vision.
Please be seated and let us pray together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come near to you in the name of Jesus. We ask for your help that we will worship you aright and correctly, that we will give to you what is your due and receive from you what you are so willing and longing to give to us this day. We ask that we may receive, we seek that we may find, we knock that the door may be opened to us. For as the Lord says, everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. We ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the good gift of the Heavenly Father, that in him we may understand the glories of Jesus, and in him and through Jesus we may come to worship the Father and love you better and receive your service to us. We remind ourselves God is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. This church service is not us serving you, but you serving us bringing us forgiveness, guidance, instruction, rebuke, correction, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. And together now, we want to say these words of um, confession of our sins. Almighty God, we are unworthy to come into your presence and we do not deserve any grace or mercy from you. And yet, O Lord, as we acknowledge our sins and offenses, so also do we acknowledge you to be a merciful God and a loving and favorable Father to all who turn to you. By your Spirit, we, we, sorry, we humbly ask for the sake of Christ your Son to show mercy to us and forgive us all our sins. By your Spirit, O God, take possession of our hearts so that not only the actions of our life but also the words of our mouths and the smallest thought of our minds may be guided and governed by you through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory now and forever. Amen. God himself gives us the assurance of pardon from his word. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Amen. Now, we're reading through the New Testament regularly, and we're in the book of Acts. Lucy is going to read this first reading. Um, we're reading Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 1, and it's on page 1115 of the Church Bible. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? 
John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and this evil spirits left them. Some Jews who arrived went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held high in honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 dramas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little while longer. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Right, we're going to take some notices today. Um, Okay, put them up there. Okay, thank you. I want to draw attention to three, and I've been given an extra one um, this morning as well. we, as a, one of our customs that we have in St. Peter's is when uh, a new baby comes, that we arrange meals for the first while for them. Ruth Murdoch is uh, organizing meals for Max and Anna. Max, you're up there, and Anna. So the baby hasn't come yet, but you're getting meals. So that's good. So if you want to help, speak to Ruth Murdoch. Um, prayer meeting being the first Wednesday of the month, there's a meal beforehand at 6.30. Kids go free, but they have to be accompanied by adults. <laughs> okay. That's all right. That was just a joke. Sorry. Now, the, the fourth uh, announcement. Um, the book of the month. It's called Following Jesus by Andrew Randall. And it's got a wonderful uh, preface by Sinclair Ferguson, who str- st- uh, strongly recommends it. It's about the essentials of Christian discipleship. Um, have a look uh, on the bookstall. You get it for the discounted price of £6. So you have been told. These are all our announcements. Right. Um, it's the children's time. Come on down, boys and girls.
Good morning. Okay. I have my man bag here. Any of you got a man bag? Any men here got a man bag? No? It's very important. It's not a handbag. Okay, how many of you like getting presents? Who likes getting a present? Yeah? If someone came up to you and just said, I want to give you a present, would you just take it? Depends who it was. You would, wouldn't you? Yeah. You would take anything. Because usually your mum and dad will say, don't take things from strangers. But I have, a, I have a couple of things here that I want to give. And do you know, I, I actually probably need to give them to someone who's a wee bit older. So who's a wee bit older who'd like a present? Who would like a present? This young man here. There you go. I got sent this this week, so it's brand new. You can have that. You can have that. Share it with your sister. It's, there are two books. We've got lots of books up there. It's really, really good to read books when you're little. And being able to read is great. That's why you go to school, you learn to read. Can you read? No. No, are you learning to read? When you go, when you go to school, you'll learn to read, won't you? Okay, so you'll go to school when you're five. That'll be great. And then you can read. And that's, reading's a great, great gift. When you get a gift from somebody, there's two things you need to know, right? One is, who's giving you the gift? So if I'm giving you a gift, you know that I'm quite nice and I wouldn't give you something nasty, would I? I wouldn't go and say, there you go, there's a snake. Have that. I wouldn't do that to you. And then it's really good if you know what the gift is sometimes and they tell you, I've got this for you and they tell you about it and you say, oh, I really, really, really want that. So you need to know who's giving you the gift and it's quite nice to know what the gift is. Now supposing you got told there's this the greatest gift you could ever get in the world and God's going to give it to you and then you went, no, don't want it. No thanks. That would be just so daft. But that's what we're looking at later. That's what lots of people do. Because the greatest gift God gives us, do you know what God gives us? It's the best gift of all. Go. Love. Aha. Uh-huh. Keep going. The Holy Spirit. Keep going. We'll go for another member of the Trinity. Jesus. His son. God so loved. He's right. Love. And he gives us the Holy Spirit. And he gave us, he gave us his son, Jesus. And the verse we're going to look at in the Bible talks about God holding out his hands and saying, here it is. And we might go, no, I don't want it. No, I don't want it. And that's just so daft. So when you hear about Jesus, you learn about Jesus. You're learning about the greatest gift that God can give you. And then you'd say, yes, I do want him. So let's put our hands together and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for each of the boys and girls here. We bless you for your goodness to each one we pray that you would help us all to learn about Jesus and that when you invite us to come to you, when you invite us to receive the gift of Jesus Christ, that none of us would refuse. Lord, may your blessing be upon us in Sunday school and in our families as well. In your name we ask it. Amen. Good to see you guys. Go and grab a seat. We'll sing again before you go out. Okay, the band... The band are going to lead us now in the song Only a Holy God. We'll stand to sing this. Um, the, while we're singing, the stewards will take up the offering. 
Um, after this, the children will go to their activities. Um, if there are babies, you, you're allowed to stay at the back there, but if you find that they might be getting a bit disruptive, you can go out to the library where the, you will hear the services fed through there, just to let you know. So let's stand and sing only a holy God. young people have left, um, Will, our, one of our elders, is going to lead us in the pastoral prayer. So.
Let's bow our heads and look to the Lord in prayer. You who are the resurrection and the life, we come into your presence on this, your day, the day in which you rose from the dead, demonstrating that the long-awaited restoration has begun, that you have overcome death and sin and suffering and sorrow, that you've risen triumphant and that you are now restoring all things. Oh Lord, how we thank you for that. How we marvel at your plan of redemption and restoration conceived from before the foundation of the world. You deigned to send your son to redeem us and through him to renew all things to restore it to a place that would bring glory and honor to you. And yet, Lord, we come in a fallen world. There's much need for more restoration. We come, dear Lord, broken, in pain, faced with sorrow and suffering, (coughs) confusion, frustration, Lord, we pray for those who come into this time of worship who are struggling, who may be depressed, who are looking for answers and can't find them. We pray, dear Lord, for those who face illness, whether short-term or long-term, feeling the effects of the curse, We pray, dear Lord, especially for those who are bereaved. We pray especially for our sister, Ruth, that you would be with her. Oh, Lord, we long for the day when you will wipe away every tear from her eyes and we will be with you forever. Oh, how we look forward to that time. We pray, dear Lord, for those in our city, in our country, who don't know you, who have no hope. Whose lives suffer in this fallen world. Oh Lord, how we pray that your spirit would be upon them, that you would bring them to yourself. And yet, dear Lord, in our need, we come not as those without hope. We come as those who love you, who are the resurrection and the life, the restorer. We come, dear Lord, pleading for your help. We can't fix these things ourselves. Human effort is not going to restore all that's broken. We need your grace. We need your spirit. We need the encouragement of one another. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. And yet, dear Lord, we come thankful. Thankful for all that you have done for us in Christ. Dear Lord, may our hearts marvel at that. We thank you as a congregation for the many blessings with which you have bestowed 
this congregation. We thank you, dear Lord, for the children that we've just seen go through. Oh, how we rejoice in our young lives. We rejoice, dear Lord, in anticipation of what you will do in those lives. And we pray for each one of them that you would already be at work, even now, as they are through in Sunday school and crash. May they hear bits of your truth of the gospel, may begin to take root in their lives and affect the way they think, the way they act, their attitudes, their priorities, even as we once. We thank you, dear Lord, for those who are involved in the Sunday school. We pray that you would be with them and bless them, give them wisdom of how to encourage these young lives. We thank you for them. And pray your blessings upon all that's done in the Sunday school, that we might see much fruit in the lives of our covenant children. We thank you, dear Lord, for the students of this congregation, many of whom are here from foreign countries, studying but fellowshipping with us, enriching our congregation with various perspectives, various cultural influences. We thank you for them. We pray, dear Lord, that you would be with them, not only in the sense of their studies, but may they grow in their knowledge of you. May they come to know you better, how to serve you in all areas of life, bringing glory to you. We thank you, dear Lord, for the young families of this congregation. Lord, we pray that you would be with those young families, that you would give the parents wisdom how to bring up those children in a world that is not supportive of Christian values. We pray to the Lord that you would provide the resources that they need to bring up their children in a God-honoring way, protect them, We pray that husbands and wives would love each other and that the children would see that. We pray to the Lord that you would watch over all of the families of this congregation. We thank you for our elderly, for the wisdom, for the years that you have given them. We thank you that they contribute to our congregation in many, many ways. Help us, dear Lord, to draw on the wisdom that you have built into their lives. Strengthen our congregation through them. Strengthen them, dear Lord, as they look back on lives of serving you. Encourage them. Keep them healthy. We thank you, dear Lord, for the amazing amounts of gifts that you have given this congregation in the lives of the individuals their experiences, their backgrounds. We are a rich congregation. Thanks to your grace. We pray to the Lord that you would enrich us further, not so that we can sit on our laurels, but so that we might be used of you to proclaim your good news to those around us. Equip us, dear Lord, as a congregation to serve you. Help us to 
know how to use the gifts that you have given this congregation in a way that would be honoring, that would effectively minister the gospel truth to our city, to our country, and around the world. Oh, Lord, how we thank you for the many, many blessings that you have given us. We know that it's not an accident. We know that it's not something we've produced, but that you have given us, and so we give you thanks for it. We thank you for the ministries of this congregation. We pray your blessings upon each one of them. We pray particularly for the church plant in Charleston. May that take root in that community and begin to be salt and light. We pray that you would give all those involved many opportunities to speak the good news to those in the Charleston section of our city. We pray that you would be, especially with Andy, give him wisdom as he guides and directs all the activity. Give him strength, dear Lord, we pray. We pray, dear Lord, for David and Annabelle as they prepare to leave for Australia. May all of the details fall into place. We pray, dear Lord, for David's upcoming coming surgery, that you would be with the doctors, give them wisdom. May the surgery be successful. May the recuperation go well, that David might convalesce and be restored fully to health. We pray, dear Lord, that you would be with Annabelle as she faces uncertainty in leaving here and family here to go off to Australia. Encourage her. We pray, dear Lord, that you would provide us with an under-shepherd that will take David's place and guide us and direct us and feed us your word. We pray, dear Lord, for our deacons that you would Guide them as they tend to the physical needs of this congregation. Encourage them, dear Lord, as they serve us. Help them, dear Lord, to do their job joyfully. But help us to be thankful to them explicitly for all that they do for us. We pray, dear Lord, for the upcoming meeting of the Kirk Session this coming Tuesday evening that you would give the elders wisdom as we look to lead this congregation. We pray, dear Lord, that you would encourage us to shepherd this flock, to tend the lambs, to make sure that they're fed and protected. Guide us and direct us, I pray. We thank you, dear Lord, most of all, for the ministry of the word in this congregation. We don't take that for granted, Lord. We thank you that you have provided us with ministers who bring your word to us faithfully week after week. We pray, dear Lord, your spirit would be poured out upon David this morning, Craig this evening, that we might hear you speak to us, encouraging us, instructing us, rebuking us where necessary through them. May, dear Lord, the ministry of your word be central in all that we do here as a congregation. And we thank you that we have that privilege.
Dear Lord, we return to the wonder of what you've done for us in Christ. We were rebels, hostile, alienated from you, going our own way, actively pursuing ways contrary to that which is pleasing in your sight. And yet you've redeemed us. Oh, Lord, how we thank you. You sent your Son to take our place, to live a perfect life. How we marvel that you loved us with such a great love. You filled us with your Spirit. You've made us adopted children in your family. Oh, Lord, how we thank you for the wonder of the gospel. May it overwhelm us every day of our lives that you, the creator God, love us so much that you sent Christ to die for us. Oh, Lord, how we pray that the wonder of that truth of the gospel might take root in our lives and make our lives a never-ending hymn of thanksgiving to you in all that we say and do and think. This we ask in the name of our King and Shepherd, Jesus. Amen. Um, Stuart is going to read now our Old Testament reading um, from the book of Psalms. We're going through Psalm 119 at the moment. Our psalm reading is from Psalm 119. We're going to read from verses 65 to 72. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, that can be found on page 619. So Psalm 119, verse 65. Do good to your servant according to your word, O Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I believe in your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. This is the word of the Lord. Stephen, you're up. Um, we're now going to sing that portion of scripture. Um, we stand to sing and sing this unaccompanied. And the tune is Trewin.
Do good to your servants, O Lord. Be Again, if you're a visitor, can I welcome you? Um, my name is uh, David. Uh, just to mention, there is a conference in Aberdeen on the evening of March the 15th and the daytime of the 16th and the treetops, Doubletree, Hilton on Thrive, Living the Gospel in and Through Your Workplace. And that is uh, organized by various organizations, including uh, Solas. It's a two-day conference for those wanting to live out the gospel in and through their workplace. And uh, there are some leaflets for that that I will leave at the door. Can I also say that the funeral for uh, Malcolm Farker will take place on Monday the 11th at 11 o'clock here and then at 12.30 at the crematorium. Now, we're going to be providing food for that and we're anticipating it will be a large funeral, so we could do with a lot of help. If you're able to help serve on the day, if you can help at the door, um, please speak to Craig. And if you can help with the food, speak to Annabelle or Sheila. If you don't know who they are, please do ask me at the door on the way out. There's also a sign-up sheet for uh, bringing food, and it would be good if as many as possible could fill that today so we know what we're still trying to get. Now, we're going to turn to God's Word, and we're going to turn to Romans chapter 10, and uh, I want to continue to look at this amazing chapter. I, was, I heard of somebody, a minister who was preaching through Romans and decided that he would leave out uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11 because they were too difficult, and he would have missed some, just some tremendous stuff, uh, and not least in this passage that we look at today. Now, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, what Paul is doing is he's answering the question, why do so many of the Jews not believe? And in doing that, he's helping us as well as we um, consider what the gospel is and how we communicate it. So let's go to Romans chapter 10. I'm going to read from verse 14, and we're going to look from verse 16 
how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And then we'll look just initially at verses 16 to 18. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Why do people believe? Well, you believe because your parents did. You believe because it's the way you've been brought up. You believe because you've been indoctrinated. Um, uh, you believe because you're stupid. That's what I was told uh, at one point. We may believe for a variety of different reasons, but also why, why don't people believe? Maybe that you're here, you're not a Christian, you're thinking, well, I'm not quite there yet. I don't believe. Or you might be someone who says, I believe, help my unbelief. What stops people believing? Or sometimes you get people say this, they'll say, I used to believe, and now I no longer do. How does that happen? What causes that? And then there's one other question that I think comes into what we're looking at is, if we do believe, why is it sometimes that it seems to make so little difference? There was a time when you believed, and it just changed your whole life, and, and you were filled with the joy of the Lord. And now, to be honest, you still believe but you're not filled with the joy of the Lord. You're struggling to get your bed on a Sunday morning. You can hardly be bothered. So, with these questions in mind, let's look at what Paul is saying here. And in particular, he's concerned about his own people, the Jewish people. And the concern is, why don't they believe? Lord, who has believed our message? Quoting from Isaiah 53. Three basic statements in these verses, I think, that help us. First of all, we do need to hear. You're not going to believe unless you hear. And we need to hear the gospel. Faith comes from hearing the message about Jesus. Faith comes, look at verse 17. Faith comes from hearing the message. It's not just enough to have faith. You need to hear the message. Now, how many times does Jesus say this? You go through the Gospels and over and over again, you hear Jesus saying, if you've got ears, listen. Listen up. Hear. And I think that that is one of our major problems, that we don't hear. We want, we want the experience. We want the joy. But we struggle to listen, and I, and I think especially maybe in, in our culture, we get very, very easily distracted. I read this wonderful article in the New York Times, because that's the kind of person I am. You know, I read the New York Times, and I just, you know, casually reading the New York Times, and there was this, just an incredible article from this journalist who had decided to detox from his iPhone and from his screen. And I thought, yeah, I've read this kind of stuff before. And I was skim reading it through. And then a line caught me. You're probably so used to being on a screen that you're skim reading this. 
I thought, okay, uh, I'll go back. You got me. I'll go back and I'll read it. And I read it. And it was, un- it was incredible because he was saying, you know what we've done? We, we, we find- he said, I, f- I realized I was in trouble when I found myself incapable of reading a book because I'm always skim reading things. I'm always doing this. I'm always, and we're constantly being distracted by different things. So you get in the car, you put on the radio, you're walking on the street, you got your headphones in. There's constant constant distraction. I'll never forget as a young minister in Broda going, um, I'd, I'd hardly ever been at a funeral in my life and suddenly I was conducting them. I remember within the first few months going to visit a home where the husband had died and, you know, it's an incredibly sad thing, obviously, and yet the whole time I was there, Coronation Street was on. And just on constantly. TV was on constantly. We're talking about the most serious things, and the TV is blaring away, almost not even in the background. And I realized there's something quite profound in that. And and I think for many of us, we are absolutely terrified of being alone, and we're terrified of being silent, and we're terrified of listening. We've, We've learned not to listen. And what that means is in terms of the gospel, it's very hard for God to get a word in edgeways. Have you ever been in a, in a uh, conversation with somebody, they never stop talking? I was going to start naming people, but I wanna, that, that would be unfair to any member of my family uh, or otherwise. But, you know, they just, all right, stop, whoa, take a breath. Or someone who's desperate always to tell you, to tell you, to tell you, and we don't listen. We just find it really difficult. In fact, even when we do listen, do you know what we're doing? We are, we are listening in order to be able to get a word in edgeways. We're listening in order to be able to answer. We're not really hearing what is being said. And there are many things, I think, that distract us from hearing the Word of God. There's noise, there's busyness, there's all the emotions within us, the doubts and the fears. And uh, I, I think of Jesus saying, in Luke 18, 17, there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, he says, consider carefully how you listen. And that goes for here, right now. Consider carefully how you listen. I had a childish practice. I'm not going to encourage you to do this. But when I was taken to church as a child, I got so bored. And so what I did was if it was a church that had stained glass windows, I would count the panes in the windows and I would divide them and multiply them and I would do all different kinds of things. Um, just anything to distract me. When I didn't want to hear, I didn't want to listen. Well, maybe that's where we're at as well. And then some of us, I think, we develop what, I think it's Lloyd-Jones calls it mechanical hearing. So you hear, you're looking this way, You're hearing the words, but they're going in and out and in and out and in and out, and no impact, nothing. Mechanical hearing. We just got used to it. And then there's what Lloyd-Jones calls the hearing of faith, and what the Bible calls the hearing of faith. We are saying, Lord, speak, for your servant is listening. And we are willing to listen and to respond. What do you have to say to me? Not what do I want to hear, not what do I have to say to you, but what do you have to say to me? 
That's how you get someone like in Acts 16, Lydia at the riverside meeting for prayer. And Paul preaches the gospel. And what do we hear? The Lord opened her heart to receive and to believe. So we need to hear the gospel and hear the message that is about Jesus. And that's what we're doing here. But there's something else in terms of hearing. How often in the scripture we talk about they heard with joy. There's a joy that comes with hearing. John 16, 22, Jesus says, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart shall rejoice and no one will be able to take your joy away from you. The Ethiopian eunuch, he heard the gospel, he believed, he went on his way rejoicing, Acts 8, 39. The Philippian jailer, Acts 16, he rejoiced with all his family because he had come to believe in God. And it is a puzzle to me and a puzzle, I think, to many people why there is so often so little joy in the church today. And I think one of the reasons, paradoxically, is because there's so little preaching and so little hearing of the gospel and of the good news. I think that's what by the way, evangelism is in terms of communicating and sharing the gospel. And let me just quote Lloyd-Jones on this, because I, I, th- I thought about this a lot. I, initially, when I first read it, I thought, I'm not sure. And then I real- more or less thought, you know, this, this is actually spot on. He says this, the early church did not evangelize by mass meetings. They did not have them. The old world was evangelized by individual Christians who had this quality of life that aroused in others a curiosity, perhaps to begin with, and then a desire to have what the Christians had got. There's a a joy in coming to know who Jesus is. There's a joy in hearing about Christ. When you think of the things, the many things that give you joy, and when you experience that joy, you really do want to share it. It's a bit like, you know... um, I'll give you an example. I was down in the National Gallery in Edinburgh. You see how sophisticated and posh I am? New York Times, National Gallery. Uh, we'll come to Dens Park in a minute, but uh, <laughs> and that'll take away all that illusion. But I'm down in the National Gallery, and there's, it's just, it's the bit that's free. And I've been there many, many times, and yet it still amazes me. You know, there's a, there a Monet painting, and because they allow you to take photographs, I took a photograph and I shared it on Instagram because it was something that brought joy. I think that's for us, like the gospel, that if it brings joy to us, we want to share it. I think the worst kind of evangelism is when you're sharing because you think, oh, I better because I'm supposed to. Um, And the best kind of evangelism is you're sharing out of the overflow of your own heart. I think that's what Paul has done in Romans, by the way. He's been teaching the Romans what the gospel is. Because you teach Christians what the gospel is, and it enthuses us to go and to tell others. And and also for the Christian, for the real Christian, I think there's a joy that comes from this. Paul has spent a great deal of Romans teaching about the depths of sin. How How does that help us in communicating the gospel? Because when you've looked into the pit of hell and been rescued from it, you want to tell people. I've been there, I've done that, I've seen it, and there is a better way. 
we see Christ. So we need to hear the gospel. There's a rejoicing, and we need, we need preachers here because it is Christ who is preaching. Um, the message is heard through the word about Christ or the word of Christ or the word from Christ. And I think it has a double meaning. It is the word about Christ, but it's also the word of Christ. It's Christ who's communicating his words. So when I asked, why don't you believe? Someone would say, well, if Jesus spoke to me, I would believe. Well, but Jesus is speaking to you. This is his word. And he is communicating to you as directly as if he was standing here himself and speaking to you. You don't have to have, I know somebody who woke up one day and at, or one evening and at the end of their bed, they say it was a vision of, of Jesus or something, and they'd never really heard about Jesus, and they felt utterly compelled. Now, they didn't become a believer just because of that. What happened was that they had this vision. We said, go and read my word. You say, well, if only that would happen to me, I'd believe. No, not necessarily. It's happened to other people, and they haven't believed. The important thing is to hear the word. It's the message about Christ, but it's the message from Christ. The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. And then notice this message here. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. The message goes throughout the world. Uh, do you know, if you're one of these people who's on Instagram, uh, you, you like, I mean, are, are you one of these very, very sad people? And I confess I've been there too. You post something and then you go back and you check how many people have liked it and how many people have shared it. And you feel really special. Have you ever had a post that's gone 1.2 million, 1.5? Oh, look at me. You know, isn't that great? It's gone viral. That's what they call it when they mean it's gone viral. See, going viral, when I grew up, viruses were bad things. Nobody wanted to go viral. That was a bad idea. Some of you have got coughs and colds and stuff. Don't spread your viruses. We don't want that to go viral. But now going viral is a good thing uh, for some things anyway. And if you can just get something to go viral on the internet, well, Bible was there long ago. The gospel went viral very quickly. In fact, astonishingly quickly. How without jet planes, without phones, without the internet, how could Paul be saying within a, a generation of Christ dying, how could he be saying the gospel's gone throughout the whole earth? Well, it really was astonishing. I like the, this quote from Tertullian from the beginning of the third century. We are but of yesterday. He's talking about the Christians. We're but of yesterday. And yet we already fill your cities, your islands, your camps, your palaces, your senates and forum. We've left you only with your temples. The gospel, how did that happen? It wasn't believed by the wealthy and powerful. It wasn't sponsored. It didn't have political power. It didn't have military power. It didn't have media power. But by the time Tertullian's writing, there wasn't a city or town in the whole of the Roman Empire, and that was a massive empire all around the Mediterranean, where the gospel was not preached and where there were people every, everywhere you would go, you would find 
Christians. And I want to say that even in, in terms of today's world. Everywhere you go, you will find Christians. Sometimes it's a little bit, I've, I mean, I've never been in the Freemasons or anything, but it's a little bit like a secret society. You know, you've got the secret handshake and all that kind of stuff. Um, I did tell you I would come to Dens Park. I was up at Dens Park one time, and again, it was in the posh bit. I was in the boardroom, and uh, a guy who had invited me as guest, he came up to me and he said, David, he says, you people are everywhere. I says, what do you mean? He said, like Christians. I says, what? What makes you say that? We were playing Ross County. The chairman of Ross County, he's a Christian. I said, yeah, worse than that, he's free church. <laughs> and he said, what? I said, yeah. And he says, but like him over there, he's a Christian. He just, I just found out he was a Christian. I said, yeah. And that player, they're a Christian. I said, yeah. I said, we're everywhere, watch out. You know, and he was really, was, he was a bit, oh, where, where am I going to meet all these people? But we are, Christians are all over the place in, in, in every context and elsewhere. Um, John was very kindly praying about a kind of hopefully minor operation that I, I intend to have. But it is quite funny going up to Nine Wells because I remember one of the doctors saying, do you know everybody in here? I don't know, how, long, how much, how long have you been in here? I said, no, no, just a lot of them come to the church or they're Christians who go to other churches. The message is heard throughout the world. The gospel goes viral. Now, that's what Paul is saying to the Romans. He's saying they, they need to hear this message, and, but this message has gone throughout the world, and it always yields fruit. I have a friend who's now uh, a minister who was walking up in the Scottish Highlands and very depressed and discouraged about life and just thinking, you know, what is the point about absolutely anything? And he, he didn't normally pray, but he decided to pray, and he prayed, Lord, help me, and then he opened his eyes, and there before him, right up on the top of the mountain, was a little piece of paper which he picked up the Lord is my shepherd was the quote of the day from the daily record that had been ripped out of a newspaper. And he just read it. And through that, he was converted. And he's now preaching and proclaiming God's word. I'm reading just now about the church in Cambodia or in Kampuchea. Extraordinary how in the most severe persecution, God blessed his word. All over the world, the gospel writes Paul to the Thessalonians, is producing fruit. And it still continues to do that. So, why do you believe? Because you hear the good news about Jesus. Because it's Jesus speaking. And because this, this, this good news has gone throughout the whole world. It's being preached. Today, the gospel is being preached in every nation. As it was prophesied that it would be. There is not a country in the world where the gospel is not being preached today. And that's a real cause for rejoicing. But then Paul has to say, okay, so why don't they believe? Surely you hear, you believe. You get offered good, something good, you take it. Well, we're going to answer that in the second part, but we're going to sing the words that came in, in verse 18 from Psalm 19. Uh, we're going to sing Psalm 19, verses 1 to 9, and the tune will be St. John. The heavens above declare the glory of our God. And as we sing this, you'll also notice there's a question mark about what Paul is saying. Is he really quoting this psalm correctly? But we'll ask that after we've we'll answer that after we've sung it. Let's stand and sing.
read on uh, verse 19, chapter 10. Again I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So why don't they believe? Well, Paul's first answer to that is an interesting one. He says, don't be surprised, it's been prophesied. And I just want to stop for a minute and ask you to consider this whole idea of, of prophecy in the Bible and also what the Bible teaches. I want to suggest this to you. Sometimes we get really surprised at things that are happening in the world. You know, I cannot believe that this would happen. I cannot believe that human beings would do this. I cannot believe that this would go on in the church. And yet, if you looked at your Bible, you would see there's nothing happening that's not in the Bible. 
There's nothing new under the sun. And often there are things that happen that have been specifically prophesied. There's a kind of fantasy view of the world, the Disney view of the world, that we live in paradise and, okay, occasionally things go wrong, but that's just because, you know, we can sort it out, we can fix it. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that the world is a mess. So when you discover that the world's a mess, you shouldn't be surprised. There's God's view. People will go, I can't believe that, and they don't believe the Bible. Those of us who believe the Bible should not be surprised when what it prophesies actually happens. In fact, for me, one of the great evidential proofs of Christianity is that what the Bible teaches about human nature and human history is so self-evidently true for anyone who's got eyes to see. But there's a, there's a problem with verse 19, or at least verse 18. Their voice has gone into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world, where Paul is citing Psalm 19. But Psalm 19 is not about the spread of the gospel. Psalm 19 is talking about how the, the glory of God's creation, that people all over the world know about God because of his creation. It then goes on to talk about his word. Now, what's Paul doing? Paul, Paul knew this. He's not being deceitful, he's not misrepresenting, and he's not being daft. What he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, is this. He's saying that just as the, the sun goes all over the world, so the gospel, God is going to reveal through the gospel. It's, Jesus is the light to the world. It's not to be hidden away, not kept in one place. That's, the Christian gospel is good news for the whole human race. It's not the gospel for one nation or one people. And it's always important for us to remember that. But I also think in this context, what Paul is speaking about, he's speaking about the Jewish people. And what he's saying is, Jews everywhere in the known world to them at that time have heard the gospel. It, you, you go at the day of Pentecost, and there were hundreds of thousands of Jews at Pentecost, and they're listed. If you, if you look in Acts 2, people from Libya and from Rome, from all over the Mediterranean were there, and they heard and saw this amazing thing. And right from the beginning, the gospel was, grew and developed initially amongst the Jewish people. And then as many rejected, and Paul went to the Gentiles. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, as he says. So I think that what Paul is saying is, the voice has gone to the earth, the words to the ends of the world. I think he's saying, yes, amongst the Jewish people. And, he's, and so he then asks this question, well, didn't they understand? And a lot of people want to say that. They say, well, people don't believe because they don't understand, and if they only understood, they would believe. And Paul's answer to that is quite surprising. He says, no, no, they understood. Look what he does. He cites, here are the Jews who've got understanding, and then here are the Gentiles who don't understand. And he's actually saying it's the ones who didn't understand who've become Christians. And that is quite an astonishing statement. Now, what was wrong with what many of the Jews... Remember, Paul himself's a Jew. This is not the caricature of um, the, the view of Christianity and Judaism which says that the Christian church blamed the Jews and therefore since then we ended up with the Holocaust. 
You get to a stage where the Roman Catholic Church did actually do that, I think, and it was wrong, but not here. The Apostle Paul is, is a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and he's saying, right, this is why most of my fellow Jews do not believe. And it's, it's, it's pretty brutal, actually. He says they've got it wrong. They thought that the gospel was exclusive, that it was for them that people had to become Jews in order to be saved. In fact, salvation was only of the Jews. But Paul cites Moses, Deuteronomy 32, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. It was always God's plan to include the Gentiles. Right from Abraham, I will make you a father of many nations, a blessing to many nations. It was God's plan to include, the Gentiles here means the non-nation. The Jews were quite, we are a nation, we are a people, we know who we are, even though we may be scattered throughout different parts of the Mediterranean, ultimately, we are the Jewish nation. And Paul is saying here, no, there are people who are not a nation. There's the mass of people who are very confused. And again, I think in our culture, by the way, that fits a lot of people. Who am I? Am I Scottish? Am I, am I British? Am I European? Am I a citizen of the world? What am I? Am I a Goth? Am I, I mean, where do you get your identity? Identity is such a massive thing for people. Where do we get our identity? And Paul says, do you know, it's the people who are not a nation, the people who are confused, whom Jesus revealed himself to. Those who don't belong, those who are the outsiders, they're the ones who God calls. I was found by those who did not seek me, he says. They didn't seek me. Didn't they understand? No, the Gentiles were the ones without understanding. The Jewish people had some understanding, not absolute, as we will see. But notice what he says. They are to be made envious, and we'll come on to that in chapter 11. How does that work? It's basically God had given the Jews great blessing. The majority of the Jewish people, when the Messiah came, rejected the Messiah. That blessing of the Messiah went to the Gentiles who were barbarians, as far as the Jews were concerned. And Paul says, do you know what that's going to do? It's going to make the Jews jealous. They're going to say, why have they got it? And later on in chapter 11, he'll talk about how that will cause many of the Jews to return. Now, how, how does that work? I, can I give you just one personal example? I was brought up in a Christian home. And when I was about 12, I thought I'd be an atheist. And I stopped going to church. And I refused to go. Um, and my atheist friends get really annoyed with this. I couldn't be an atheist because it was so dumb. Uh, intellectually, I thought, but I thought, no, I'm still not going to believe Christianity. I'm not. So I, I stopped. I stopped going to church. I stopped doing anything. I stopped, didn't read the Bible, didn't go to Sunday school, didn't do anything. Um, by the mercy of God, I was pre prevented from doing lots of really stupid things that a lot of my friends were doing, but that was only because my friends were doing it, and I was a rebel, and I wanted to do something different. So they were bad. I thought I'd be good uh, just to be rebellious. But um, I remember in between Christmas and New Year one time, where it's a lot of parties, and I phoned up a friend to see where we were going to go for a party that night. And he answered the phone by saying, hi, Dave, God is good. And I thought, what? And then I just got mad, because I thought, you were brought up in a non-Christian home. I knew instantly what had happened. 
I knew he'd been converted. I just, I knew what conversion was. and I knew that had happened. And he said, oh, I said, you're not going to believe this. I've become a Christian and it's great and all this. And you know this, I was raging because I was thinking, that's not fair. I was brought up in a Christian home and I'm not a Christian. And you've been brought up as a pagan and you're a Christian. I got so mad, I went to church with him. Um, <laughs> instead of going to a party, we went to a watch night service. And I was so confused about everything. I was, and so I prayed, Lord, if you're there, you show me. I'll serve you the rest of my life. And that was when over a period of time after that, God really worked. I was provoked to jealousy by God working in someone. I knew what Christianity was. And I think deep down within myself, I knew it was true. I said, that's not, how's that right? And sometimes you see that in a church. You know, people who've come along, you know, they've been, oh, they've, you know, my grandfather was buried here, you know, and my mom was buried here, and I'll be buried here. And, you know, I'm in with the bricks and all that kind of stuff. And they're, you know, part of the church, although they don't really believe in Jesus. And then along comes some urchin off the street who's converted uh, first. And, and the next thing they know, they're, they're being involved and they're praying. And you think, well, wait a minute, what are they doing? They don't belong here. I belong here. I was brought up here. This is my church. These are my people. Provokes to jealousy. And that's, I think, what he's talking about here. And you know, there is a lesson here for those of us who are in the church, who are brought up in the church, and who are part of a church where God's Word is being taught and preached. We can become quite hard, and we can become quite formal, and we can become quite set in our ways. And when that happens, when God begins to work, we, we can hate and react against it. There's a danger that we can have the right doctrine that we understand, inverted commas, and that we even regard ourselves as the custodians of the faith, despite others, but we've become formal. I'll not say the church, but I went to preach in a church once, and the minister told me, David, just at night I would advise you. He says, you know, your style's quite informal. The people here are quite formal. He said, I'll just give you a, a wee bit of a hint. On the evenings of the communions, so that tells you it was a free church. On the evenings of the communions, the people quite like a good hellfire sermon. And he said, you don't wear a collar. That's a dog collar. And he says, they'll be quite upset. And I said to him, well, you don't wear a dog collar. He says, I know, but he said, they think I've got a rash. <laughs> so you know, they loved him, so they just made an excuse. But they said, you know, they think you're a heretic because you don't wear a dog collar. There's something wrong with you. And so if you just, I'm not saying telling you what to preach, but if you preached a good hellfire sermon, they would love that. And I said, I can't. I said, are you talking, are you talking here about Christians? He says, oh, no, most of them are not believers. At least half the congregation are not believers. And I said, and they like a good hellfire sermon. He said, yes, you roast them over the fires of hell on the evening of a communion. They'll go away thinking, oh, that was great. But it's like being at a horror movie. You know, you just, you, you haven't, you, you, you're, you know, it's something that you switch off. And they'll go, oh, that was proper preaching. That was a real minister there. You know, he had the collar and he roasted us over hell. That's proper sermon. But they don't believe. So what's happened? They've not internalized the gospel. What they've done is they, they've, they've become formal. They've become ritualistic. And they've become hardened. Because if you weren't hardened, the last thing you'd want to hear about is hell, actually. It's a hard thing to preach on, too. They misunderstood salvation, the Jewish people. They thought it was national. They, they, they misunderstood it because they saw it was in, in, in terms of knowledge and learning. Like people today who'll say, well, I'm Christian. Why? Because you're Scottish? Because you're not Muslim? Oh, I'm Christian. No, you're not. You haven't a clue. 
I'm Christian, I go to church. Hardly. But that's what they thought. They relied on their works. They relied on their religion. They misunderstood in that sense. They thought they had understanding. But Paul goes harder. Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Why do they not believe, says Paul? They don't believe because they're stubborn. They don't believe because they're obstinate. Deuteronomy 32, which he'd quoted from, includes a lament or a warning about Israel disobeying. They refuse to listen to the truth. Our society is supposed to be a society that's against prejudice, little realizing that all of us have prejudices. We all make prejudgments, and there are many people who do not and will not listen to the truth. I'm not coming to your church. Why not? I don't believe it. What don't you believe? I don't know. I just don't believe it. I'm not listening to that rubbish. It's from the Stone Age. Oh, what do you know about what you don't believe in? Basically nothing. But it's almost as though I, I, I actually sat in a meeting once and the woman, I don't know why she was there because I'm pretty sure she hadn't intended to be. When she realized what I was saying, she actually sat there like that, which was great because I knew at least she was listening because it was really beginning to annoy her. I'm not listening. I refuse to listen. There are people who've made up their minds. There are people who don't want to hear. There are people who don't want evidence. And that can be us. The problem for many of us is we don't believe, not because of an intellectual problem, though that can be real, but a moral problem. It's a problem of the heart. We don't want to believe. We don't want it to be true. God revealed himself to the Gentiles. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Earlier in Romans 3, quoting Psalm 14, Paul says, there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. But he says, God reached out and got you. And he's writing to a congregation where he's saying to a slave girl and to a prostitute and to a Jewish teacher and to a, uh, possibly someone from the Senate and someone from the palace guard, all from many, many different backgrounds, slaves, the scum of the earth. And he's saying to them, you weren't seeking God. He reached out to you and he sought you. And yet, despite that, Despite God's grace being extended, many of the Jews still refuse to obey the gospel. And that's the problem. Disobedience rather than understanding is the real problem. Look at the phrase. All day long I have held out my hands. What patience the Lord has. God is patient. Where's this second coming you keep talking about? Why, why doesn't Jesus come and sort it out? Because God is patient with you, not wanting any to perish. God is being patient with this city, with us, with our families, with our lives. A disobedient and obstinate people. So, let me summarize this. The church, let me say something to us as a church. The church should be a place that's filled with joy and power. And it's very easy for us to become hardened. I think if we do... It may be that God will renew and soften us. It may be, but I think it's more likely, looking at church history, that what will happen is that the Lord will go elsewhere. And he will bring in people who've got no background. And he will work amongst different people. Because what's going to happen is, the church is not going to die. The gospel is not going to stop being proclaimed in all the nations of the world. 
But it could be that our church dies or any particular denomination dies or individual congregation dies because the Lord will not be, is not constrained to us. We need that joy and power. But then let's think about this phrase, obedience and obeying the gospel. What does it mean to obey the gospel? And I don't have time to go into it, but chapter 1, verse 5, the obedience that comes from faith. Chapter 6, verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart that pattern of teaching that's now claimed our allegiance. Chapter 16, verse 19, everyone has heard about your obedience. Here's the point. You can agree intellectually with the gospel, but if you don't obey it, you don't have faith. You're not a Christian. And obedience is not obedience to a, a list of rules, but it is a commitment and an obedience to Christ. It's repenting, it's renouncing idolatry, and it's following Christ. So this week I was in discussion with a former evangelical, I would now say, who, is, who had given a talk about how God is gracious and he accepts you just as you are and all the rest of it. And people said this was great. And I said, well, no, hang on a minute. What do you mean by that? And the response I got was, I said, you know, does God accept the racist just as they are? And the response I got was this. Yes, God loves the racist and the murderer and the pedophile. That is the very nature of outrageous grace, that when we were still far off, you met us in your son and brought us home. It's outrageous, isn't it? Now, I couldn't believe that she'd actually written that. Because if I'd used the phrase uh, pedophile in the context of a discussion about LGBT stuff, I'd have been reported and banned. But she used that. And she said, wow, that's, isn't that God's grace? And I'm saying, yes, that is God's grace. God saved Saul, who was murdering Christians. And God saved people who were demon-possessed. And God saved prostitutes. But what he didn't do was say, you carry on murdering Christians because I love you just as you are. You carry on being a murderer. You carry on living that, that sexually perverse lifestyle. No, he didn't say that. He saved us from something for himself, and he saved us for obedience to Christ. He rescues from disobedience to obedience. And there's a plea in there. There's God commanding everyone to repent, but God also pleading with people to come to him. And again, forgive me for saying this in, in personal terms. When I got to that particular stage uh, with my friend being converted and then uh, praying that prayer, I knew that this was my last chance. I can't explain how I knew it. I knew it. I, several times before, I believed that God had invited me to himself. There were times when I knew the gospel was true and I said, yeah, but, but wait a minute. Uh, what about this? What about that? What about that? And then I realized I couldn't out-argue God. So it was, hang on, let me have a bit of fun first. And let me become a terrible sinner and then I'll repent. Wouldn't that be better? You know, I did all the stuff. But for some reason, just at that time, I just thought, you know, this God is patient, but he, his spirit won't always strive with man. And he's holding out his hand. And I knew. I had to say yes. And it was as simple as that. I just had to say yes. They used a technical language. I needed to close with Christ as the, you know, just a, uh, the non-technical languages. I needed to stop faffing around. 
It's not being called to obey a set of rules. It's being called to a relationship. It's when you get married. Marriage is not about primarily signing a contract. Let's do the prenup. Let's look, do all this. Let's do this, this, and this. What happens if this, this, and this? Sign on the dotted line with all these subpoints A, B, C, D, E, F. It's not what it is. You're standing and you're saying, I commit myself to you for the rest of my life. And when you come to Jesus, you're giving your life to Jesus forever. It's the message of Christ. It's Christ calling you. It's Christ inviting you to him. It's Christ urging you to pray. It's Christ saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Calvin puts it this way. He is very emphatical in this expression that he stretches out his hands. For by seeking our salvation through the ministers of his word, he stretches forth to us his hands, no otherwise than as a father who stretches forth his arms, ready to receive his son kindly into his bosom. And he says daily, that it might not seem strange to anyone as if he was wearied in showing kindness to them. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God? You see it. I love it when I see, uh, you know, I'm just thinking of a, a picture in my head just now of a, a young father and he comes home and his son's there, just a few, just walking and holds his arms out and the uh, the kid runs into his arms. That's the gospel invitation. It's not God saying, you better do this and you better do that or you're going to hell. It's God saying, you're lost, you're confused, you're, you're broken, you're, you're sinful, you need to be forgiven. And he's holding out his hands. And all the time when you hear the gospel, this is what Jesus is doing. He's holding out his hands to you. He's holding out his arms to you. He's saying, I'll never turn you away or forsake you. Let me finish with Lloyd-Jones. If you find yourself in hell, you will have no one to blame but yourself. It is because you were not persuasible. It is because you were stiff-necked. It is because you would not come. You did not come and you were determined not to be persuaded. All day long I have stretched out my hands. Why did you not come? That is what God will say to unbelievers on the day of judgment. You won't say to God, you didn't give me evidence, you didn't tell me, you didn't do this. You will not blame God. God will ask you, why didn't you come? I held on my hand to you all day long. Why didn't you come? Well, you've got to answer that question. And I would suggest you answer it today. Don't wait. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful picture of just a father who holds out his arms, extends his arms, not briefly, but all day long, to a disobedient and obstinate people. That's us. Help us, O oh Lord, to run into your arms. If we do not know even what that means, Lord, grant us understanding. But please, don't let us be those people who think we have understanding. And yet, it's really our stubbornness and our obstinacy that keeps us from you. We ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to sing the song, um, Just As I Am. And in that conversation that I mentioned with the former evangelical, we do come to God just as we are. But we come knowing that he will pardon, that he will cleanse that he will relieve, that he will renew. So let's stand and sing this and please remain standing for the benediction, just as I am without one plea.
Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Tea and coffee is now served. And don't forget the bookstore.